Corinthians today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but I promise I won't keep you here past 3 o'clock this afternoon, so I'll move quickly. No, I'm just kidding. It won't be any later than 2.30, I promise. Um, but we are going to look at a lot of Scripture today from 2 Corinthians, specifically chapters 8 and 9, and so I'm, I'm going to move through that fairly quickly, but I, I hope and pray that this message is one that is well-received because it's a difficult message uh, in a lot of ways for pastors to preach. It's a topic that uh, a lot of people get turned off by, and so I'll explain more about that in just a moment. But before we begin, as you found your place in Second Corinthians, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 119, uh, verses 33 to 37 for our time of confession. So I'll read these verses, and then I'll drop my voice and allow you a few moments to pray quietly before I lead us together corporately. So Psalm 119, verses 33 to 37, David writes these words. He says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, thankful for the instructions that you give us, and thankful for the Holy Spirit within us as believers that equips us and enables us to keep your word. Father, I pray today that as we, as we hear from you, that we would hide your word in our heart, Lord, and that we would seek to obey you and to be obedient in all the things that you teach us and instruct us in, Lord, uh, so that we can grow in the faith and so we can grow more like Jesus. Uh, Lord, bless this reading of your word and bless this hour of service, and we give you thanks today for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Corinthians uh, is where we're going to be at today. This letter was penned by the Apostle Paul, and he has given them a lot of instruction up to this point. And really in chapter 8, he kind of shifts gears, and he, and he starts to talk about a topic that uh, was probably difficult in some ways for them and is, is probably difficult for us. Unfortunately, the prosperity gospel and preachers of that nature have not helped these type of messages because for the most part, especially people outside of the church, they're already really skeptical about what we do in here and what we're about. And a lot of times, preachers are seen as just money hungry. Churches are seen as money hungry. And so anytime that money is brought up at all or talked about or preached about, the people say, well, here we go. Just what I thought. And so uh, because of that, a lot of times pastors will shy away from any type of messages to do with money uh, or not talk about those things. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. Uh, and so I don't think we should avoid that topic. I think we should handle it biblically. Uh, I don't think that we should be coercive. Obviously, a pastor shouldn't stand up here and try to get your money for himself, and that's not the goal of me uh, here today. My goal is to simply let the text speak for itself and uh, pray that you would be obedient to what God would have you to do. So as we look at this, I'm not going to read all this uh, from the from the text today because it's just going to be too much but I'll, I'll go through it and uh, read it as we go uh, along starting in second corinthians 8 but i want to ask you a question and i want you to be honest about this question uh, in your mind who in this room monetarily speaking who in this room would consider themselves rich 
or wealthy? Would you consider yourself money-wise, money-wise, rich? Think about that. I want to I just throw a couple of numbers at you just, just to try to prove to you how rich we all are in this room. Everybody in this room is rich beyond measure monetarily. We don't think we are because we weigh ourselves by the American way of life and the American standard. But I'm talking about in the world. The poverty line for Americans, what the U.S. government considers to be poverty level for an individual is $12,880. If you make less than $12,880 uh, a year in America, you are under the poverty line. But did you know that if you make $12,880, you may be considered poverty level in America, but you are in the top, uh, you are richer than 84% of the world. You are richer than 84% of the world if you make poverty level in America. I, I looked this week just to get an idea of what the median average salary in Ohio is now. The median line in Ohio is $56,477. That's a comfortable amount of money, but it's certainly in our minds we wouldn't call that rich. But if you make the median income $56,477, you are in the top 1% in the world of riches. Not, you are richer than 99% of the world if you make that average salary. So I just want us to think about that for a minute. We are rich. We are rich. We are blessed. Now, I know cost of living and all those things in the, uh, come into factor. You say, well, I don't feel rich. I barely make it. But in a global scale, we are rich. We certainly are. And so, with that in mind, I want to preach a message to you today titled, Putting the Thanks Back in Giving. Putting the Thanks Back in Giving. Because we're in that time of year where there's a lot of talk about giving gifts and receiving gifts. Now, all of us like to receive gifts. We do. We, we like to get gifts. Hopefully, we're thankful when someone gives us a gift. But I want to ask you again to think about this. Are you thankful when you give? Are you thankful to be able to give to others? As much as we are thankful when we receive things, we should be all the more thankful when we are able to give. Do we ever, when we pray, do we ever stop to pray, Lord, thank you for giving me so much that I can give to others? Thank you, Lord, for all your blessings on me so that I, in turn, can be a blessing to others. Because we are just stewards. Everything is the Lord's. And we are simply stewarding His possessions. And we will give an account for what we have done with those. And so as we, we think about that, the Apostle uh, Paul, as he was talking to the church in Ephesus, writes these words in Acts 20, verse 35. And, and he shares with us a, a beatitude, if you will, that we know from him, Jesus said, but we don't have this recorded in the Gospels. But Jesus said this, Paul said, in all these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the Lord Jesus himself laid down that principle, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you may not, I'm going to move this microphone, you may or may not have been prepared for this, but you're going to learn Greek today. You say, well, I don't want to learn Greek. That's not necessary. You're the preacher. I don't need to learn Greek. Well, you're going to because it's going to help you. It's going to help you with this particular topic. So don't get overwhelmed. I know some of us have a hard enough time with English, so it's not going to be bad. But on Wednesday nights, 
for the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about the charismatic movement, right? So if you've been with us on Wednesdays, uh, you've hopefully learned a few things about what happens in the extreme sense with the charismatic movement. Uh, maybe you have heard someone talk about a specific person and say, that person has a lot of charisma. Ever heard that word before? A lot of charisma. We've talked about the charismatics. Uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, not in this church we don't call it that so much, but when the Supper is observed in other denominations, it is called the Eucharist. Okay? Maybe you've heard that, especially if you have a uh, background in Catholicism or, or Lutheran background, Anglican background, you would have heard the term Eucharist. Why do I bring those words up? I, I hope that as I've said those words, charismatic charisma, Eucharist, you hear somewhat of a familiar phrasing in those words, that CH sounding. It makes the sound we would say Christ, Christ, charisma, charismatic, okay? So in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, why, why do I bring all that up? In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the Bible says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see that word thanks in that verse? Give thanks in all circumstances? That word is the Greek word eucharisteo. You say, what on earth does that mean? Well, it means to express gratitude or give thanks, just like what we see in our English translations. But if we were to trace that out a little bit more in the original languages, you would see that that word has a root in it. And again, it comes with that, that CH sound, that charismatic sound. And so that word is charizomai. You say, what on earth does that word charizomai mean? It means to show grace. And at its most basic level, and here's your Greek word for the day that you can probably remember because I gave you those big ones that you probably won't. It's charis. Charis. Can you say that? Charis. Do you know what that word is in English? It's a gift. That's where we get our word grace. Amazing grace. It's charis in Greek. Grace. Why do I bring those things up? Why is that important? Because when we read the Scriptures in English, we don't have the extensive amount of vocabulary that the Greeks do. So that's why it can be difficult sometimes to translate from one language to another, especially Greek into English. But when we see the words in our Bibles, gift, thanksgiving, or thanks, those are all interchangeable with the word grace. So when we read scriptures like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, we could literally say give grace in all circumstances. When we, get, when we talk about being thankful, we are talking about grace. It's a gift. It's an opportunity to show someone undeserved favor. All that carries with it. So I want you to think about that as we read this text today from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And why that is important is Paul uses the word grace ten times in these verses that we're going to look at today. And he's speaking about giving, but he's using the word grace over and over and over as he teaches on this topic. So I want us to look at this today so that hopefully when we think about giving, it makes and creates in us a thankful heart. It creates in us the idea that we have been so blessed by God's grace 
that we are able to show grace to others, that God has given us such an amazing gift in His Son, Jesus Christ, along with many other blessings, that we in turn can be a blessing to others, that we should be so thankful when we give, not just when we receive, okay? So let me share with you a few thoughts this morning. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verses 1 through 6, I think that Paul lays out for us there an example to follow. So this is some instruction on what giving ought to look like for us. So listen to what he says in verse 1 of of chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace, there's that word, the grace of God, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So God's grace, number one, caused these believers to focus on the mission. There was a need going on, if just to kind of fill you in, Jerusalem had experienced some difficult times. Persecution, famine. And so these folks in Macedonia, this northern region, this area of churches, specifically probably Philippi and the churches in that area, they weren't well off themselves. They were struggling too. Like they didn't have a lot of extra to begin with. But they saw a need in Jerusalem and immediately they were ready to do whatever it took to help their brothers and sisters. Why? Because grace had united them as one family. You know, a lot of times, we think about taking care of folks in our own church, and maybe some folks if there's a need outside. But really and truthfully, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if all of God's people and all true believing churches came together and from time to time pooled our resources to help and meet needs all around us? You know, we're not the biggest church, and so we have a limited amount of people, and a limited amount of, of, of funding. But man, if, if we put everybody together, think of what we could do. Think about how, how much work we could see done for the kingdom of God. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy because we, we limit ourselves by pooling or by, by keeping our resources to ourselves. I'm thankful for you know the Southern Baptist Convention here locally that works hard, you know, and it's up to the churches at the end of the day, but that does work hard to try to get the churches together to work and cooperate with one another and the cooperative programs and things of that nature. It's important. We can do a lot more together than we can isolated. And these believers understood that. They came together, even though they didn't have much, they pooled their resources and they said, we are going to meet this need. Uh, They were mission-minded and they moved forward. And and you kind of can hear about a little bit of that in Acts, uh, verse 11, 29. It says, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability or according to his means to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So they were focused. They had a mission, and because of grace, they were going to move forward. Then he goes on in verse 2 and says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Man, that sounds like a bunch of contradictions when you read that verse. He said in their severe test of affliction, that abundance of joy. Like we're like that. Those don't when I'm afflicted, I'm not full of joy. Right? But these believers were. Why? Because the grace of God was so rich in their lives that circumstances didn't change what was going on on the inside. If, if we really understand the goodness of God and just the person of God and who it is that lives within us, stuff may get really bad all around us. But that won't change who's on the inside. That won't change what's going on in here. If, if you allow all of this noise out here 
to steal your joy, you are giving away something that you should never give away. You should not let the world have your joy. You should not let the world have your peace. Christ died for that, and He gave that to you. Guard it with all of your heart. These believers understood that. And even though they were in a severe affliction, they had abundance of joy. And, and then here's another oxymoron. In their extreme poverty, it overflowed into a wealth of generosity. Again, these folks, they didn't have an abundance. They had probably just barely had enough to take care of themselves. Yet, buddy, they were generous with it. They were willing to do and give whatever they could to help. It's interesting to me when you, when you look at statistics... The, 20 per, the percentage of people in the, the lowest uh, income level, 20% lowest, give twice as much as people in the top 20%. That's interesting to me. That It's, it's a pattern that it, that it proves true over and over that the poorest of people most of the time are more generous than the wealthiest of people. I don't know all the reasons why I have my opinions on that, but it is, it is interesting to think about nonetheless. And then he goes on in verse 3 and he says, For they gave according to their means, Paul says, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So think about what Paul is saying in that verse. He's saying that they gave according to their ability, so it was proportionate to what they had. But then he goes on and says, not only did they give of what they had, they went above and beyond. So it, it didn't just go to, well, we've got a little bit of extra here, so here you go. They gave until it hurt. It was sacrificial. It wasn't just comfortable. It crossed the line to becoming sacrificial. And I also want you to notice at the end of that verse that they gave of their own accord. It was their own free will. They willingly gave it. Nobody coerced them. Nobody guilted them. Nobody pushed and prodded them to give. It was a decision that they made based on who they were in Christ and what they wanted to do for their brothers and sisters. And then he goes on in verse 4 and says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here's a truth that I have found, and if I'm not careful, I've been guilty of this before. Many times we can give, and we can even give generously. But when we give, or we give generously, are we enthusiastic about it too? A lot of times we give, but we're not very enthusiastic about it. A lot of times when we take up an offering in church, or when we pass the plate during that time of service, it's like halftime. Like we, we're like, okay, we just sung a song, here's halftime while they pass the plates, then after they're done, we're going to get back to worshiping you realize that taking up an offering is part of worship. I hope that you understand that we worship through our giving. We worship through our offerings. It's an opportunity for us to give back so that the work of the kingdom can advance. Listen, I wish that we could call up Duke Energy and say, we got a great church with a nice bunch of people, and you know, I, I hope that that's good enough and we don't have to pay the bill. But it, it, they, they want money, don't they, Kim? They won't, they won't just take our, our, our nice words and sentiments. And so, you know, unfortunately, the church lives in a world that relies on money and, and it relies on your generosity. Uh, and not just paying bills, doing the work of the ministry. Going out and spreading the gospel in this, in this world, unfortunately, requires 
some money to get things done to take care of people and provide for those needs and whatnot. So we get an idea of, of how this church was functioning. And then Jesus is our ultimate model of that. So in verses 5 through 9, he paints a picture of Jesus. He says, In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything in faith and in speech and in knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace. So at the end of the day, he's pointing them back to Christ. He's pointing them back to the fact that Jesus has been so good to them that how could they in turn withhold good gifts from their brothers and sisters? How could they not be generous when God has been so generous to them? And that's really where he continues on throughout the remainder of that chapter. And so for sake of time, I'm going to move forward into chapter 9 because I want us to see some things that Paul continues to share with the church in Corinth and hopefully will help us as we think about being thankful in our giving, being thankful in our giving. Number one, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, we will find that giving is contagious. You know, often we talk about the fact that bad news spreads, but if, if you can get people excited about certain things, hopefully you get excited about the Lord Jesus. That's contagious. Have you ever been around somebody that's on fire for God? It's contagious. You think, man, I want what they have. I want that excitement. Church, that's, that's the way that we ought to try to strive to live our lives is we ought to go out into that world and they ought to look at us and say, man, that person has so much joy. They have so much hope. They're so encouraging. I want to know what's going on. Why are they like that? And then you can tell them why. It's because you have passed from death to life, that you have a Savior that loves you and provides for you every day, and you can share that good news with them. So giving is the same way. When, when a church gets excited, when a church is generous, when a church is reaching out beyond its walls and helping people and being a blessing to its community, man, that becomes contagious. It really does. People say, man, did you, did you see what K. Russo Baptist Church is doing? Did you see what they do for their community and what they do for their members? When, when there's a need, they step up and meet it. They provide when stuff happens. They take care of one another. That's contagious. It really is. So, so look at what Paul says in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. He says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia and Achaia, has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated. So, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that you be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. So what on earth is Paul saying there? Well, he's writing to this church in Corinth because when this need came up, as we mentioned in chapter 8, the churches in Macedonia, they were all about it. They didn't have much, but buddy, they jumped on board with both feet. They said, we're, we're going to give, and we're going to give beyond what we have. There's no time to waste. Let's meet this need. Paul remembers writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was messed up. It had a lot of issues. And so one of the issues at the church in Corinth was it was in a very rich city. 
So these people are polar opposites, financially speaking, of the churches in Macedonia. These folks, most of them at least, probably would have had an abundance of resources. Okay, And if you also remember the church in Corinth, one of the things that they really kind of got on their high horse about was the spiritual gifts. Especially speaking in tongues and some of those things, they thought, man, we are really special because we've got these gifts. And they focused so much on those gifts and, and the Spirit working in them and stuff. And, and Paul is saying, now, let me just remind you that when this need came up in Jerusalem, all of the churches, including you, were all on board to help. But notice that he said, it's been a year, and we're still kind of waiting. Like, a year has passed, and we believe that you're going to give, like you said you would, but we're going to send some folks down there just to make sure, and we're not trying to push you to do this, but we just want to prove to everyone that you are faithful, and you are going to follow through with what you said you were going to do. A lot of times, we talk about giving, but it never gets past the talking stage, right? When we see a need, it's good to discuss it. It's even better to pray about it. But at some point, we have to move forward and meet the need. We have to actually put feet to our words. We have to actually have action and not just talk, right? And so he said, when, when you do these things, when church in Corinth, when you are faithful, it is going to bolster the confidence of everyone else. The church in Macedonia was a blessing. And that really did a lot of good for people. But when they see you giving out of your abundance, it's really going to be a blessing. It's going to stir other people up. In Hebrews 10.24, it talks about that kind of language, about stirring one another up. It says, let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's one of the reasons why when we gather together in here as a church family, we want to encourage one another. In all aspects of our Christian walk. We all need some encouragement. Amen? Every once in a while, we just need a little encouragement. We need a little bit of stirring up. We get settled sometimes. We get into a rut. We get into a routine and we say, Oh, another day, another day, another day, everything's the same. Especially if you're retired, it's real easy. So I'm told to fall into a routine and a rut. And you just kind of, you don't even know what day it is anymore. You're just like, well, I, I don't know. It's the weekend, I guess. It seems like every day is the same to me. But we need one another to stir each other up. And whether that's in giving or any area of our lives, it's important that we encourage one another and stir each other uh, up in love and good works, as Paul said. So he wants to encourage the church in Corinth. He doesn't want to coerce them, but he does want to encourage them so that they will give and in turn that others will be strengthened by their example. I also want to say this, and I want to be careful how I say this, because this, this has caused so much chaos and confusion uh, with the prosperity gospel, but giving does bring blessings. Giving does bring blessings. Now, I'm not telling you that if you'll sow a seed of faith this morning, that God's going to give you a new car in your driveway tomorrow. That's not how this the whole thing works. God's not a cosmic genie where we put a few dollars in the plate and He rewards us with a new house. That's, that's just not going to happen for you. I just want to be honest. He can do that, but that's not the goal. That's not the aim. That's not what I'm preaching to you today is to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Okay? And so, giving does bring blessings. That is a biblical principle. In Luke 6.38, Jesus says these words. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back 
to you. So there is a biblical principle there. God does bless our faithfulness. He does bless our obedience. You can take it and see that in the Scriptures over and over. Look at what Paul writes to the church in Corinth here in our text. Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That word bountiful or bountifully is where we get our English word eulogy. Have you ever been to a funeral? I think, Brother George, you just recently did a eulogy at a funeral. It's, it's speaking good about someone's life. Speaking good words over somebody, a praise. We, at the end of the service today, when we close out, we, we give what's called a benediction, a closing prayer. We're asking God to be with us as we leave this place and bless our week, bless our efforts as we serve Him. That's the idea of that word bountiful. If we are, if we are seeking to be a blessing, we will reap blessings. Okay? And so then he goes on in verse 7 and he says this. And, and this is really important. And, I, and, and, and this is another topic where not everyone is going to agree with me. I understand that because throughout church history, not everybody is going to agree on this point. I'm going to teach you today what I believe to be the biblical teaching. And you can take it or you can not take it. Or you can study it for yourself and come to a different conclusion or agree with me. And then that's what I encourage you to do as always. Search the scriptures for yourself. But look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. I want you to think about this verse for a minute and we're going to look at it. And I want to just draw a few things for you to think about in your giving. And the way that you give. Number one, he says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That tells me that God is concerned about what's in our heart. It says that, that man looks at the external things, but God looks at the heart, right? And so, in giving, the most important thing that I believe the Scriptures teach in giving is not the amount, it's the motive. It's the motive. God is not so concerned with the amount as He is with the motive behind it. You can give every dime that you have, and if you gave it begrudgingly, it was worth nothing. And you can give a nickel, if that's all you had and that's all you were able to give, and give it with a, a heart that's filled with joy and thanksgiving and, and desire, and God is honored by that. He really is. I believe that with all my heart. There was an illustration that I found. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it goes like this. It says, When 67-year-old carpenter Russell Herman died in 1994, his will included a staggering set of bequests. Included in his plan for distribution was more than $2 billion dollars for the city of East St. Louis, another billion and a half for the state of Illinois, two and a half billion for the national forest system, and to top off that list, Herman left six trillion dollars to the government to help pay off the national debt. That sounds amazingly generous, but there was one small problem. Herman's only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. He made grand pronouncements, but there was no real generosity involved. His promises were meaningless because there was nothing to back them up. The motive matters. 
You can say and even do all kinds of great things, but God is looking at our hearts in all things, but especially in our giving. I want us to also think about this idea because we love it when we talk about the fact, and again, going back to that word grace, we are under grace. And we say, man, when that comes to sin, like when we blow it on a daily basis, thank God for grace. Aren't you glad for that? That God shows us grace when we blow it? But a lot of times when we talk about giving, we want to go back under the law. We want to go right back to the Old Testament and say, well, when it comes to the giving side of things, we're still under the Old Testament law of tithing. We're still under that 10% tithe law. You better keep it or else. I would argue that that is not what the New Testament teaches us. And now before you get mad at me, give me a chance to at least explain and tell you this. In the New Testament, tithing is not a law for the believer because we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. But tithing is absolutely a principle for every one of us as believers to follow. I believe that In the Old Testament, if we were to look at the tithe, we would quickly find that it far exceeded 10%. If we're honest, it was closer to 25%. uh, If you count in the time of Jubilee and different things that all incorporated that. So it was, in a sense, much higher. It was also given to the Levites, not to the local church, to take care of them as they didn't get a portion with the 12 tribes of Israel. So even if we try to compare the law and say it's still in effect, it's hard to say that what was going on with the Levites in the temple is the same as giving to the local church and the ministries, but that's another topic for another day. But I do want us to think about this. It is a principle for us to follow. Look at what Paul said in, in, our, in verse 7 that I just read to you. Each one must give 10%. No? Nobody? Okay. So that, it's not just my translation. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, motives, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, as he has decided or purposed in his heart. That word means predetermined or planned. When it comes to giving, you should have a plan. You should have a plan. I know needs come up spur of the moment that you can't plan for. But when it comes to giving in your church, you know that it's happening, right? Like, we just started passing the plate, so maybe that caught you off guard if you haven't been here, and we did that. But giving in a church is a weekly occurrence. Plan for it. Prepare for it. Hopefully you budget. Hopefully that's something that you do anyway, and and the first fruits principle and things of that nature... Uh, or something that you think about when you give. The idea is that Paul is saying you give according to your heart, your motives there, but it's not something you just do spur of the moment. It's not saying, well, well, well here comes the plate. I've got a quarter in here from, from my coffee. It should be something that you plan for. It should be something that you think about and pray about because the motive matters. Not reluctantly, not saying, well, here it comes and everybody's watching me. I guess I better do it. And not because a preacher preached on tithing, preached on that topic last week, and, and so now he expects me to give. I better do it or else he's going to knock on my door and ask why, why I haven't been given. It's not about that. I don't look at who gives what. I don't care who gives what. That's between you and God. But it ought to be something that you pray about, think about. It ought to be a part of your life. 
It's a big part of your walk with Christ. It is. And so he goes on and says that uh, we ought to be givers, not takers. And he says, give it uh, premeditated, planned, not a leftover. And really, if we even go back to the Old Testament, you say, well, that's not what I see in the Old Testament. Absolutely it is. Let me take you all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus 25, 2, as they were getting ready to build and prepare the tabernacle. Okay, listen to how Moses instructs them as God gives him instructions. Moses tells the people, this is the plan. This is how we're going to take up the offering. Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. Very similar language. Like what God puts on that person's heart to give, give. Again, we have a principle. God shows us that 10% principle. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't use that as a good gauge. But we're not under that law. But if God has blessed you, why would you not want to be a blessing? Why would you not be generous as a believer if God has been so good to you or to me? Right? Not reluctantly, not grudgingly. That word means with sorrow and sadness. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be sad when we have to let go of some of our money or some of our resources. We, we shouldn't be. Um, now, I will say this. Again, I've challenged you. I've challenged myself. We should be generous when it comes to the local church. There are needs, and they have to be met through the giving of God's people. Uh, but I'm not going to come and knock on your door and ask you what you give and, and why you're not giving or what you should give, that's not for me to do. That's not the role of the pastor, and I will never take on that role. There was a funny story that I read. said that two men were marooned on an island. One man paced back and forth like he thought it was the last day of his life. The other man was relaxed, and he appeared unconcerned. The first man said to the second man, Aren't you afraid? We're about to die. No, said the second man. I made a $100,000 commitment to our church building fund and my pastor will certainly find me. That's not me. I, I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire if you've made a commitment. If you promised George that you're going to give $100 for one of those cakes, I don't think he's going to come knocking on your door if you don't follow through and I'm not either. So just know that that's between you and God, but it should be something that you pray about, that you plan for, because it is a big part of your walk of faith. Uh, and Billy Graham said, give me five minutes with a man's checkbook and I can tell him where his heart is. It, it matters. It does matter. And so, as we go on in our text, uh, I want us to see that he says, God loves a cheerful giver. You see that word cheerful? You know what English word we get from that word cheerful in the Greek? Hilarious. The, the Greek word is hilarion, and it's our English word Hilarious. God loves a cheerful giver. It ought to make us happy to give. It ought to make us smile when we're able to bless other people. Now, there is a spiritual gift of giving, and not everyone has that. Some people can give above and beyond, and I understand that. But all of us ought to be generous, and all of us ought to be able to try to meet needs as God lays it on our heart. As, as he puts opportunities before us, we ought to be willing to move on those things. And so he talks about this sowing and reaping principle, and then we'll wrap up with this. Uh, he comes to these last, two, uh, these last two motivating principles, if you will, and then he kind of summarizes it all. So in verse 12, this may seem painfully obvious to you, but in verse 12, we give to meet needs. There are all kinds of needs, and I wish we could meet every single need that comes along. We just simply can't because we don't have unlimited resources, but God does. And so a lot of times when we trust him, he meets needs that we couldn't. 
But he says in verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings or grace to God. So he tells them basically that when there's a need, we give so that we can meet those needs. Warren Wiersbe said this. I found this quote this week. I thought it was great. He said, Grace never looks for a reason. It only looks for an opportunity. Grace never looks for a reason. It only looks for an opportunity. I thought that was really good. When, when, when we see it, when God puts an opportunity before us, if we can do anything about it, we ought to. We ought to try to meet that need, whether it's as an individual or as a church family. There are a lot of folks. That's why we want to try to be a blessing, not just at Christmas time, but we know that Christmas time can be difficult. I don't know why, but companies love to lay people off right before Christmas. They, it's like they plan to do that, to inflict the most heart, hurt. They'll lay you off right before Christmas, and that's terrible. And so if, if someone's in that situation, we want to try to help them, try to take some of that pressure off them and not have to stress about Christmas time. So that's just one way here at K. Russo that we want to think about needs and try to meet those kinds of needs. And then finally, he says in verse 13, that our giving ought to glorify God. Again, that may seem obvious, but it's important for us to think about when we give and if we're going to be thankful about it. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Um, so by participating and giving to the church in Jerusalem, the church in Corinth was proving that their faith was genuine. They weren't just talking about it. They were living this thing out. There's an old, uh, an old proverb, if you will, and it says this, it's difficult to preach the gospel to a hungry man. What does that mean? It's difficult to preach the gospel to a hungry man. Well, I think what it's saying is what James says in James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? We have a great message to share with people. But a lot of times before we sit down and have that conversation, we meet some needs. Jesus preached to a lot of people, but did you ever notice before he preached to them, he fed them? He sat them down and he took five uh, loaves and two fish and fed a bunch of people and then he preached. He met the needs in real time and then he turned, told them about the eternal good news. Right? A lot of times the door to us to share Jesus is opened by our love and service to others. That's why when we do events, it's not just to have a good time and give people a hot dog or walking taco. But we understand that when we get them here and we provide with some of those needs, the door might be open. Maybe they let their guard down a little bit so that they'll talk to us and we can tell them about Jesus. There's a biblical pattern behind that. Okay? And so, wrapping up with this verse here, I promise. Verse 15. We, we, he goes on and says in verse 15, Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. When we give, let us always keep in mind the fact that the gift given to us by God in the person of Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that we could ever imagine. It's a gift that can't even be put into words that the second member of the Trinity, the only begotten Son, would leave heaven and come to earth, become a man, sinless, but suffer all the things that He did 
and willingly go to the cross to lay down His life for our sins. I can't fathom that, that the Son of God would empty Himself and take on the form of a servant and that He would go willingly to the cross to die for me when I wanted nothing to do with Him, when I spit in His face and rejected the offer to know Him over and over and over again, yet He willingly and showed love and grace to me. I can't understand that. That's why that grace is so amazing. That love is so indescribable. And my prayer is that you, you have experienced that. But if you haven't, why not? Jesus died for you too. He knows what you've done. He knows your sin. He knows your shortcomings. He loves you nonetheless. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that gift is available today for you. The question is, have you received it? The question is, will you receive it? I'm going to invite the praise team to come. Well, I'm going to invite Shane and, and Brian to come anyway. And I want to read to you this poem. And I want you to think about this as we close. I want, to think, I want you to think about God giving you His Son. And I want, to think, want you to think about, as we go into these holiday seasons especially, with Thanksgiving, think about how many blessings we have. Are we thankful for that? Does it show up in the way that we share those gifts and steward those gifts? Are we generous? Do we even, is giving even a part of our walk of faith? Do we even consider that? Or have we detached our finances from, from our, our salvation? Just be honest about that this morning and listen to this poem that someone wrote. It says, One by one, He took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was empty-handed, Every glittering toy was lost, and I walked earth's highway grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. So I held my hands towards heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches, till they could contain no more. At last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour His riches into hands already full. If you will open up your hands and give to the Lord, He will fill you up with more than you could ever imagine. I say it all the time, you cannot outgive God. You just can't. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything is His. He gives us so much. Are we generous with the things that He has given us today? Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for being good to us, Lord, especially in this country. We are so blessed with material things. And Lord, the goal is for us to not lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven. So may we hold loosely to these things of earth and share those gifts with others that we come in contact with that, that have needs that we can meet. Lord, it's great to pray for people. But I pray that our prayers are motivated to lead us to action and that we would be the most generous people on earth as we have opportunity here in Hamilton and beyond. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. Most of all, we thank you for your gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. My prayer today is that everyone listening and everyone in this room knows him. And if they, if they don't know him, that today would be that day. Father, we, we give you thanks as we go into this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, there's room at the cross for you. If you need to come this morning,